Hello and a very warm welcome to the latest episode of the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Thomas Hopkins, reporting to you from London. On today's podcast, I am pleased to be joined by Fahad Afkar, a senior associate at Allen & Overy, who will be discussing the burgeoning floating solar sector and its growth as a project finance asset class. Fahad's practice is focused mainly on project development, project finance, and aircraft financing. His core experience includes advising on project development and project financing in power sectors, representing a bidder, a sponsor, and or a finance party in various notable power projects in Indonesia. His recent transactions include the 1,800 megawatt Jawa 1 power and FSRU project and the Chirata floating solar power plants. Fahat has also advised PT Garuda Indonesia on its global aircraft restructuring and various aircraft delivery and innovation deals. Fahat, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Thomas. It is uh, my pleasure on behalf of uh, the ANO Jakarta team to join here and share our experiences on particularly on floating solar PV, as we will be discussing today. It's really great to have you on the podcast. Um, floating solar is, I think, certainly a very interesting sector. I mean, to start off, I think it might be helpful, perhaps, if we discuss kind of the case for floating solar investment. So, I mean, under what circumstances do you think that there's a, there's a strong business case for floating solar over and above ground-mounted solar? Thanks, Thomas. I think that's a very um, interesting question to start off this, this, this discussion. Uh, let, let's uh, address the biggest elephant in the room. Uh, floating solar PV, it's, a, it's an emerging market. Uh, we're, st we're still experiencing this market is maturing in terms of technology, uh, legal documentation, um, environmental assessments, and even some of studies are still indicating, uh, uh, still indicating that uh, we're still expecting some evidentiary uh, scientific study to prove some of um, uh, obstacles and also solutions to floating solar PV, which I will uh, specify later on the call. So, the, the biggest uh, advantage of floating solar PV, I think, based on our experience in doing the Chirata project is there's no land required for the project. In, in, in the countries such as Indonesia, where the land price is increasingly high uh, as we go over time and as the economic growth and as the industrial uh, industrial estates are growing as well as the residential are growing, then it's difficult for solar PV in general, which requires a very large area for laying down the floating, so, uh, laying down the solar PV arrays. Uh, so in that case, uh, it, uh, if there's, um, if, if there's uh, water bodies that can be used um, nearly dense, densely populated area, uh, that water bodies can be, uh, uh, can be utilized for the development of floating solar PV. Another strong, stronger, another business case that may be helpful if the water bodies is already used for, for hydropower reservoir, where the floating solar PV can take benefit of the synergies between the existing uh, electricity facilities in that hydropower, as well as the floating solar PV. So I hear you, you're about to comment on something, Thomas, I'll, I'll, I'll pause here. 
Well, I was just going to, thanks for that. I was just going to um, ask in relation to the land, am I right in saying that it's, it's not even just the sort of sheer amount of land that's required for ground mounted PV? You usually have to have land of the right type. So if you've got particularly sort of mountainous terrain or terrain with large amounts of rainforest or something like that, which I think might apply in, in Indonesia, as I understand it, it would be difficult to, to do ground mounted PV. Yeah, that's correct. I think uh, if you want to build uh, ground mounted PV in a densely populated area, then it means there will be a lot of um, uh, buildings already established in the surrounding lands. And it may, may not be a very good area because there will be shades uh, of uh, building of uh, building uh, obstacle building uh, disturbing the, uh, the sunlight through through the ground solar PV. So that will be uh, one of the issue if we are building a ground mounted solar PV in a densely populated area. So the question is, what if we build it uh, far away from the densely populated area? Then the issue would be, who will bear the cost of the transmission lines from that area to the to the grid? Uh, if it's already an existing grid system nearby, then probably the cost may be uh, calculated, may be financially discussed with, by the sponsors and considered. But if it's far away, uh, because either it's a unused plantation area or unused farm area, I don't think it's possible to build a nearby mountain area. Then, then whether already whether there's already an existing uh, a grid in the system where where the new ground mounted solar PV can just step into the uh, neighboring system. If not, then, then the cost of the ground mounted solar PV would also include the cost of that transmission lines on top of the uh, land cost. Of course, and that's where, of course, the, as you were mentioning, the business case would come in when you've got a, you know, a hydropower um, project, because then you'd have some existing grid transmission uh, already available. And uh, I mean, just to, out of interest, you know, with a floating solar project, would there usually be need to be some upgrades to the grid transmission infrastructure that you had from the hydropower plant, or you know, would it be usually sort of possible for the um, floating solar project to kind of piggyback on the existing grid infrastructure that's there for the hydropower plant? Yeah, I think that's a a, a good question, and based on our experience, uh, there needs to be some. Uh, transmission line facilities from the inverter station to the nearest substation. And that ca can't be using the existing one. So there needs to be a separate lines, but from the, the nearby substation and then to the bigger grid system, they can just step into the already existing high voltage transmission lines. Okay, thank you very much, Fahad. So I suppose we've established a kind of business case for where floating solar might potentially be more viable, you know, uh, generally sort of densely populated areas or areas where you've got sort of land constraints, particularly. Um, just thinking about, you know, lenders moving into this uh, this area, and I know we've, we've seen a, a number of project financings um, in, in recent years. Um, do you think there's any additional technology risk for, for lenders for floating solar when you compare that with, with ground-mounted solar again? Yeah, I think uh, looking from this aspect, uh, obviously sponsors uh, need to look into this technology risk early from early stage. So I think uh, this, the earlier stage of solar PV development would be site identification. 
that would require what type of water bodies that would be uh, that would be used to develop, and then with, uh, what is the downstream or the upstream of the flow flowing from or flowing into that type that water bodies the location etc, and that would need to be assessed uh, periodically as the assumptions of the project develop given uh, there will be already a feasibility study made and then legal study made and then ESC uh, study made. Uh, in terms of specific issues, I think uh, here uh, the most important issue is issue related to the site. So we need to, as mentioned, we need to know what the type of water bodies, natural lakes, can it be used uh, for floating solar PV? Is there any limitation? Um, and whether there, there's an existing uh, algae uh, uh, growing in, in, in natural lakes or, or as well in the reservoir. And if there's an existing algae, uh, what would be the impact if there's a floating solar PV floating over some of the surface area? I think the theory is it the, the panel would absorb the heat, so obviously, for some areas, the heat would not be would not penetrate uh, the water, and that would eventually kill or sorry degrade or decompose the algae, and it means uh, uh, a, re a reduction of oxygen level in the water, and if there's already an aquatic biodiversity, what the impact to that uh, to, to to that development of floating solar PV. I think I, I read a working study and, and uh, people are still uh, evaluating, even the, the market is still not maturing enough uh, to know what would the 10 year impact or 20 year impact uh, of floating solar PV into aquatic biodiversity. Uh, another aspect is <clears throat> whether there's, there, there's a fishery um, activity in that area. If there's a fishery activity in the area, then it means that there will be feeding activities uh, what happens for uh, the uh, uh, and overfeeding overfeeding because some of the um, food for the fish uh, flowing into this uh, flowing into the uh, floating PV area and somehow it stucks with the with the mooring uh, facility and it creates sedimentation and sedimented of uneaten fish would increase uh, phosphate and nitrate levels, and that would uh, add some weight into the mooring lines. And that sort of uh, anticipation needs to be evaluated and discussed early, uh, incorporated into the ESC studies. I think one of the solution would be create a feasible barriers in the area. And ov obviously, if there's a barrier, then it limits the uh, the existing uh, fish fish farming activity. And, and then social discussion consultation with the nearby fish farmers that also to be taken into account. So technology risk needs to be also be approached by ESG approach as well. I think one, one issue related to the site is about boat traffic. I think what, what, what I notice there must be uh, no traffic at all allowed near the flo floating PV arrays, uh, uh, mooring area. If it's a floating inverter, then there's no traffic at all that would disrupt the uh, uh, the integrity of the of the project. Uh, second uh, aspect is issues related to the EPC contractor. 
as we mentioned, this is the market still uh, is still developing, not mature enough. Uh, not, not that many uh, regional or global of uh, solar PV pr uh, producer, uh, let alone floating solar PV producer, because uh, although the uh, the 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 pan PV array may be the same, the technology, but there will be a floating aspects there will be used. Uh, I think HDPE polyethylene is the most used technology, but still heavy. So probably people will develop some more uh, 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 light light floating uh, technology, the mooring technology, and given it's uh, still maturing, um, whether there there is enough proven track record EPC contractor in the market. Uh, if there's not enough, then whether a foreign EPC contractor uh, will develop uh, or will establish a subsidiary in the relevant market. And, and lastly, is a proven track record in the market. I think I know I, I've spoken too long on this on this topic, but just want to wrap up with one, uh, two, two more issues. One is issues related to the local content requirements. Some countries may be very protective with local content. Some countries may be lenient. As for Indonesia, it's very protective. Uh, and now, effectively, 60% uh, local content for solar panel must be produced locally. So people are still uh, uh, looking how, how to satisfy the local content requirements. It can be waived, but uh, we're still uh, still hearing that a waiver may not be uh, issued eventually. So local manufacturer is um, is, uh, is raising, grasping this opportunity. So hopefully in the next five, 10 years, uh, there will be enough demands already for them. And and then one technology issue that still unquestion, still be questioned is the commissioning. There's no PV mature enough to, to to look how the commissioning needs to be uh, assessed and what would be the best technology to, to achieve that. So there are some uh, uh, studies, but I think uh, still need to be wait and see how eventually the commissioning technology risk needs to be looked into. And for, for a BOO project or in a country where, float, where uh, floating solar PV may be developed by way of equipment, lease uh, agreement, then the developer is eventually the one that decommissioned the projects and they need to think about it earlier in the project as part of their uh, feasibility study. Thank you. Uh, just to follow up uh, on a couple of points you mentioned, Fahad, this is very interesting. Um, just in relation to the EPC contractors, are you finding that this really does need a kind of specialized EPC contractor as you say, with a kind of proven track record. I mean, I know it might be hard to demonstrate that in the sense that this is an emergent technology, but are you, are you finding that uh, a kind of crucial sort of mitigating factor to technology risk is, isn't a kind of experienced and specialized EPC for floating solar? Yeah, I think one of assessment that technical, a technical uh, a consultant needs to uh, give the assessment is, uh, whether they have both ground-mounted solar PV as well as the floating solar PV experiences, uh, the technology for uh, for the PV and uh, and arrays may be the same, inverter may be the same, but the floating aspects of it that's something that that is different. And uh, I, I think uh, sooner or later, mo uh, most of uh, ground-mounted solar PV will eventually have that experience. Given for Indonesia. 
developing market, I think uh, lenders may probably accept uh, mini minimal experience for floating solar PV as, as long as there's already a grandmother solar PV experience taking into place there. Okay, thank you. That's, that's very interesting to hear. Um, just moving on to a, a different question, uh, perhaps a slightly more of a legal issue here, really. Um, are there, in your experience, any complexities related to lenders taking security over the water or indeed the right to use the water on which a floating solar project sits? Because I know perhaps it's slightly more straightforward with ground mounted in the sense that either the developer owns the piece of land and developer, and lenders can take security over that or, you know, the, um, the developer has a lease uh, for, the, for the land and uh, lenders can take security over that. But I know with with floating solar, you perhaps run into issues where, you know, water is sort of publicly owned. And so I don't know if you've ever kind of come across issues with the kind of security interests in relation to the water or the right to use it. That's a, a, a very interesting question. And, and we as the lawyer, I think, uh, really like jumps up of our chair. And so what, what would be the secret interest that can be taken into by the lenders? So, uh, and I think, uh, let uh, to answer the question, take a step back is uh, what sort of uh, site control or water use permit or rights that can be, uh, uh, that needs to be obtained or uh, helped by the developer. And country per country may have different, different approach. Uh, there's a country that probably allow <clears throat> a private reservoir to be uh, uh, privately owned. So as such, an um, access to the surface water subject to that owner, or uh, in some other countries, uh, water bodies cannot be owned. So it needs to be under some sort of license, licensing um, aspect. So as for Indonesia, no one can own uh, or help uh, a title over water bodies. So it will be under a license. So from the lender's perspective, if this is a common, uh, if this is a common situation for all developers for all projects, then this is a country risk, and this is an inherent risk. And lenders who wish to push uh, a carbon emission limitation or push their green agenda, there is no other way than accept that there will be no land title for the projects. And that's up to uh, the sponsors and, and or the legal counsels, either for the lenders or the sponsors to create an analysis that may be acceptable for the lenders. So typically, I think uh, lenders would see when they, when, when, I think when project goes to knock on wood, uh, bankruptcy or default, there, there are two options, either obtain the shares in the project company. And I think that would solve the issue because no assets or no license needs to be transferred by the purchasee. But if lender sees that I don't want to sell the shares, I want to sell the assets, then the assets, all the contracts and the licenses need to be transferred to third parties. I think rule of thumb is from administration law perspective, license may be transferred uh, subject to discretion if the relevant law or the relevant license does not explicitly allow. Uh, in, in under Indonesian law specifically, water rights may be transferred, and and based on that uh, allowance or permission, uh, uh, I think it, uh, lenders uh, take comfort that 
this is probably just administrative process that needs to be uh, taken that needs to be just just uh, uh, absorb and then consider so I think on the water access uh, I can see that uh, obtaining the license and traveling license is not probably an, an issue unique to Indonesia and I, I read that some studies in the US in Singapore or perhaps in Japan Japan uh, there's no uh, private title over water bodies uh, if not privately owned so I think hopefully that answers on on the lenders given it's a, not a unique situation uh, and and more more probably akin to common situation probably this is something that lenders need to to, to consider and accept if they want to enter into this market thank you for Hudson just considering again the sort of use of the of the water because that is very interesting that that is just something lenders will have to kind of get comfortable with ultimately <laughs> Um, you were mentioning a little bit earlier, actually, in, in relation to the water, that obviously you had to make sure that there was no kind of boat traffic near any of the project assets. I mean, in your experience, I mean, is there potential for kind of litigation there? I mean, I just had to draw a comparison. I know with offshore wind, sometimes there's there's been sort of legal challenges from kind of those with a kind of fishing interest nearby the, you know, the sort of proposed project site. Um, so do you think there's, there might be any kind of legal issues from parties who wanted to use that body of water, potentially for fishing or, or the boating traffic? Yeah, I think uh, for natural lakes, uh, the use of natural lake, the zoning, uh, maybe most importantly for tourism. So development for <clears throat> or, or fish farming. So the de development for uh, electricity may need some changes to the zoning and there are some mechanism in place in most countries and 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 that would include consultation with the public and i think in that public consultation eventually people have opportunities to comment on and and given if it's natural lake <clears throat> uh fish farming there or as well as tourism is not something that a private right it's it's more like a license or permit so their permit can be limited and they may be eventually asked to to limit their activities as whether there's been a case that i know of i don't know to be honest uh but in existing uh in the project that that, that we've uh, assisted uh it's a hydropower and the uh the primary use would be would be for electricity and other use would be subject to uh, um, flexibility of the hydropower operator. So, getting the uh, allowing them firstly to have a fish farm activities probably as part of their social interaction commitment, uh, and perhaps limiting them to to such social interaction interaction in the hydropower may be something that uh, a discussion of the operator. But in Indonesia, uh, the use of water surface would not be allowed if it's more than 5% of the hydropower of the reservoir area. So I think the strong answer is they still have 95% of the area to, to, to be used. And the 5% is the maximum allowance for floating solar panel. I think the next question would be what where the, where the arrays would be located, is it? in near the channel or is it in the middle and that would somehow 
impact the aquatic biodiversity, and that would be assessed case by case uh, on case by case basis. Um, Thomas, of course, thanks for that. Um, I, I just wanted, if I move on to perhaps a specific project, because I think it's quite helpful to to sort of look at. Um, kind of actual some specific projects that have been uh, developed. I mean, I understand that Alan and Overy advised on the recent uh, Chirata project financing in, in Indonesia, uh, something of a landmark transaction, I, I believe. I mean, could you tell me a bit about the history of the project's developments and, and, and the financing? Thanks, thanks, Thomas. Yes, uh, we we advised lenders, uh, the mandated arrangers on that deals. Uh, and which uh, I think last year we reached financial closing. And uh, it's a landmark deal because it's the first floating solar panel in Indonesia. Uh, and then it's a project finance as well, uh, all commercial lenders. So from that aspect alone, it's something that um, uh, people already get getting, getting, get, getting happy to talk about. Uh, and it's a 145 megawatt contracted capacity so at the moment is uh, it's it's uh, the, the largest uh, floating solar PV in Southeast Asian so uh, and I think it's second largest in Asia but uh, don't take my words on it I need to double check so uh, I think the history about it is uh, Indonesia has a lot of reservoir potentials and it's been in the talk by the government and Indonesia and the UAE government uh, several years ago they wish to um, invite more investors in Indonesia. And as we know, uh, UAE uh, is an expert, one of a uh, country that has a lot of uh, solar PV already installed in their country, and they wish to bring their expertise in Indonesia. So as part of that uh, cooperation, <clears throat> uh, uh, stem this project forward. Um, but under Indonesian law, uh, given it's a subsidized market, and monopolize uh, market by by Indonesian state-owned enterprise. Uh, so it's not as easy as appointing the project to foreign investor or private investor. So there needs to be a competitive tender to get the best price, uh, uh, the best price in Indonesia. Uh, but at Indonesia at that stage through the government uh, state-owned enterprise PLN, uh, they introduce a, a new model, which is 51% model, whereby PLN can appoint their subsidiary <clears throat> and the subsidiary can develop their project based on direct appointment. So there, no, there, no needs, there needs to be no uh, tender on that aspect. And how that UAE, UAE cooperation and this 51% model connects to, so the Indonesia, the PLN, that's the government, Indonesian government state-owned enterprise. They have, they have, they had a partner selection, and they invite uh, uh, interested participants to to bid into this project. Uh, so there's still some sort of a competitive tender, but it's at uh, at um, smallest level. Uh, so so Mubadala through Master, they 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 won the partner selection, so they partner up with PJB. So this is the second 51% model. Uh, rich financial close. So again, uh, it's also uh, a, a landmark project in our view, and we, we were happy as part of that. Fat, I know you touched on this particular point a little bit earlier, but just to sort of go into it in a little bit more detail. Um, I mean, is floating solar, do you think, particularly suitable for Indonesia? And 
how much potential do you think there is for technology to, well, for floating solar technology to be scaled up as part of Indonesia's energy transition? Okay, so I think when we talk about the economical of the project, it's still uh, uh, the biggest challenge here. Uh, as we are probably heard that Indonesia uh, generation are largely still supplied by fossil fuel. And as we commonly know that fossil fuel technology may be cheaper than, than uh, renewable technologies. And as I mentioned earlier, a tender is a must. And a tender would require uh, any new project to be benchmarked against the fossil fuel. So if I put a number on this, uh, for example, coal fired probably around six cents uh, per kilowatt hour. And it's difficult for, for renewable energy to come below that. But I know some developers were able uh, to, 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 to bid uh, below that, that, that fossil fuel uh, base of generation, cost of generation. So that's the biggest challenge. Whether we have huge potentials, yes, we do. Uh, because we basically uh, a maritime country. Uh, we have a thousand natural lakes. We have a uh, thousand three hundred man-made man-made lakes. And studies have not been developed as to the potential because not just because it they are lakes they can be used for floating solar PV. Uh, the grid study needs to be taken into uh, energy yield needs to be taken into a study. Um, and sort of other studies needs to be taken into account. But Indonesian government, government already estimated, I think around 1,000 or 1,500 megawatt potential for floating solar PV. And that would include one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven projects are in the pipeline. And we're still um, monitoring closely whether this would be government-owned project or independent power producer project, but hopefully, this will be open to private sectors and, and, and uh, uh, soon we, we will be hearing that hopefully. Uh, yeah, and, and I think to answer that biggest challenge, uh, the government knows uh, and they need to uh, come up with solutions. And, and I think the solution would be uh, more subsidy. And, and we know that there's a draft bill in place that would introduce a specific renewable subsidy that would be, would be managed by an independent body. And the independent body uh, is asked to manage these funds and, and uh, um, so that each year these funds would not uh, be burdened the state budget because of the subsidy nature of the renewables. Yes, of course, thank you. And that's, that's brilliant to hear that there are sort of potentially seven uh, projects in the pipeline. I, Fahad, I know you've mentioned some of the the challenges um, that sort of floating solar development in Indonesia still faces. But is there anything else that springs to mind when you think about the most significant challenges that either developers or, or lenders face in relation to really scaling up floater, floating solar technology? Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest challenge, at least that we are hearing in the country, in, in Indonesia is uh, local content. So it's it's either we want to push uh, more, more technologies, either foreign or local, to be introduced first in Indonesia, 
and Indonesia uh, learn slowly of this technology. And then eventually when the market is mature enough, the local content is uh, pushed slightly higher. But I think uh, now it's already like stringent 60%. And, and that's something that uh, a sponsor and a lender is uh, uh, looking to this closely. And as mentioned, a waiver is possible, and but waiver is case by on case by case basis. Um, and I think coming back to your point, another issue is about what happened with the existing users of the lake. So um, um, we mentioned if there's a fish farm farming, uh, hopefully there there won't be any objection because Indonesia may open a challenge of issuance of license if. Uh, there's a, a misprocedure in issuance of the license, in, including environmental reporting or license. And one of those uh, <clears throat> uh, avenues may be caused by uh, lack of consultation. So I think a close requirement by the lenders that consultation is conducted, the issues is applied properly. Uh, uh, that, that's one of the, uh, uh, biggest challenge that needs to be <clears throat> handled for, for any, any project, uh, if I can say so. Um, and lastly, is, um, uh, as I mentioned, near densely populated area is, is the strong, strongest business case. And we have a lot of industrial estates in Indonesia, and they have a cooling, cooling reservoir, or they have um, uh, this reservoir for tourism. and and these developers of industrial estates are willing to build reservoir, uh, build floating solar PV in that reservoir so that they can somehow self, uh, self uh, supply their electricity not dependent on the government. But the limitation of 5% uh, use of surface area is still uh, a question, question by many people. Uh, and, and I think uh, we hopefully a few uh, hopefully feel <laughs> the government would amend that because um, uh, yeah there, there are a lot of interesting projects in the pipeline and I think I, I, I can I can explain what 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 are those projects uh, if we still have time yes by all means thank you for that yeah uh, so I think if you, uh, it's this is a, a public knowledge that Singapore uh, intends to invite um, <clears throat> uh, any Singaporean importer of electricity, and it's 1.7 gigawatt by 2027, and 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 will be scaled up until 2035. And the neighboring, the, uh, the closest con countries are Malaysia and Indonesia. Malaysia has this uh, restrictions on import of electricity if it's generated generated in Malaysia. So people are looking into Indonesia and Batam. Is a, is a provincial government in Indonesia and they have a lot of reservoir. But if this 5% limitation is still in place, then, then it's maybe difficult to, to maximize the reservoir in Batam to tap into this Singaporean uh, uh, request for import of electricity. So that is uh, one, big, one big project that people in this area are, are, are really looking closely and how it's going to be unfold. Thanks for that. I've just got one final question for you, really. And uh, you did start to address it earlier, I think, when we were talking about technology risk, because you were sort of saying that technology risk needed to be approached in relation to ESG issues. 
I'm, I was just thinking about ESG concerns surrounding floating solar. I mean, does floating solar have any ESG advantages or disadvantages in relation to ground-mounted solar? Yeah, uh, I think that's a good question. Uh, one, one, one thing can be advantage and disadvantage is water evaporation. So uh, one of the benefit of floating solar PV is there's already a natural cooling, cooling mechanism uh, because the water flowing uh, subsurface of floating solar PV. But on the flip side, that reduce uh, uh, evaporation from water bodies. And, and if the reservoir is located in area that is susceptible, susceptible to droughts, then they may be seen as a disadvantage because then evaporation will be reduced, uh, the rain, uh, somehow rain may be affected in the area. So that is to be uh, take a uh, look closely. And for, uh, I think um, the largest uh, use of water body for floating solar PV may be up to 60% in some countries or 50% or 50 or 60% in some countries. So if 60% if of reservoir is blocked and evaporation is really something that supports the ecosystem, then th that's the ESG impact that needs to be taken uh, closely. I mentioned about algae redu reduction of algae blooms. Uh, uh, that also something that should be taken into account whether the existing uh, aquatic biodiversity is heavily relying on uh, algae for oxygen level. And lastly, I think I forgot to mention about uh, social impact. So if uh, people affected in the reservoir uh, losing their probably uh, uh, dec uh, decrease in, in, in profits because their fish farming area is affected or, uh, uh, or tourism, for example, if it's allowed affected, then uh, so the social impact may uh, could the solution could be offering them to join the project and, and work there. And I know that that's a, one of the uh, international standards that's suggested if there's a social impact to, to the project from the project. Thanks, Fahad. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, but Fahad, I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thanks, uh, Thomas, and, and uh, really our pleasure to share our experience. And it's an exciting time for renewable, especially floating solar PV enthusiasts, to look how the market develops and look how we can all develop, uh, contribute to the eventually uh, carbon emission uh, that we already uh, committed to. Yes, well, certainly, I hope that projects like Chirata are the start of you know, a very large pipeline of floating solar projects. Um, I'd just like also to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. Um, I'd just also like to take a moment to encourage listeners to take a look at Proximo's 2021 Deals of the Year Awards for Latin America and North America, which have been announced on our website at proximoinfra.com. Uh, be sure to join us again for next week's episode of the Proximo podcast for more of your latest project finance, energy and infrastructure content. <music>